Everyone, it's very good to see you here. Uh, isn't it great that when Belinda's voice gives out, out of the corner of my eye, I see at least half a dozen people volunteering to walk forwards to do the reading. So thank you for your concern. Um, now, as Ira said, my name's Matthew. Uh, today what we're going to be doing is um, having a look at the second in our Big Questions series. Uh, the question today is, isn't it arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way? Now, you just heard Malcolm read the Bible. Um, I'm going to refer to the Bible a number of times through this um, talk today. Uh, Why do that? Well, the Bible is a place that we at this church believe is where you can hear God speak. Uh, So if you've closed your Bibles, open it up again to John chapter 14 and uh, follow along and check that uh, what I'm saying is exactly what Jesus is saying because it's his words that we're investigating Now, isn't it arrogant to say that Jesus' way is the only way? It's a good question, isn't it? Uh, Isn't it arrogant to say that Jesus' way is the only way? Now, today what I want to do is start with you uh, and to think about uh, why this is such a strong and good question. It's a strong question because of the truth that it it assumes and it's also a strong question because of the experience that it affirms. So let's start with the truth that this question actually picks up on. It's taking up that idea that there is a God. If we look back through human history, one of the things that we'll notice and becomes clear to us is that people just about everywhere have conducted some kind of search for God and the meaning of life. In most places, in most times, throughout all of world history, people have pursued this question and they've come up with Uh, their own answers in localised ways in different places. Uh, They're always asking the same question, though. Does God exist? What's he like? How can we relate to him? Uh, Globally speaking, 90% of the world, according to the United Nations, holds some kind of religious belief. Uh, Humankind, always asking big questions, pursuing the meaning of life. It seems like it's just something that we are wired to do. Uh, With most people I talk to, uh, this seems to be where they're at, even in secular Australia. Now, deep down, they seem to say, I've got a hunch that God exists. Uh, That there probably is some kind of God or some kind of supernatural being out there. It's not particularly scientific. Uh, It's a gut feel. It's as simple as that for many people. Uh, Maybe they look at the way the world is and they see a beautiful sunset. Perhaps they were there at the birth of their baby. Maybe some people can wrap their minds around the fact that our earth is spinning around and around at a great speed around its axis and around the sun. And they say, well, sure, if you put it like that, it's not too hard for me to believe that there is some kind of God. This question seems to hold the assumption that there is a God. And the second thing is, and I think it's sound as well, This is a good question because our very experience affirms it. As we look around us, we can see that there is a plurality of religions. There's a lot of diversity in the answer to who is God and is there a God. In Australia, according to the 2016 census, 12 million Australians hold to Christianity. 600,000 Muslims 560,000 Hindus, 440,000 Sikhs, and another 2 million Australians identify to some kind of religious belief. 
Uh, in these days of pluralism, then, when we see the diversity around us, we feel that there's something right in being sceptical when a person claims certainty about God. When we hear of someone marching onto the scene and saying, look, let me clear away all the doubt, sweep away all the guesswork and tell you plainly how it is, we stop and we wonder, are they arrogant to speak that way? Maybe they're making a claim they ought not to. So is it arrogant to say that Jesus' way is the only way? It's a good question. How might Jesus respond if we put that directly to him? And in answer, I want to take us to that passage, the second passage that Malcolm read from John 14. But instead of arguing out the theoretics of this, what I'd like to do today with you is to stop and think and listen, not just to the words Jesus said, but how he spoke. What I want to do is look at the character who made the claim... I am the only way to God. I want us to see what kind of man said, I am the truth, I am the way, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Let's look at his character and what he's like. And so we come to John 14. Just immediately before this, the context is immensely interesting. The moment that we're looking at, with Jesus talking to his closest friends, is a time of immense pressure for Jesus. He knows that his life is about to end. He knows that his closest friends are going to turn away from him. And so in John chapter 12, 27, he's just said this, My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And then a little after that, we hear in chapter 13, Jesus say, in fact, it says in chapter 13, after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. So Jesus, he knows what he's facing. He knows that this hour has come And he knows one of his closest friends is about to betray him. He knows that Peter, who he spent the last three three years with, is about to deny him. And Jesus knows that he's about to be falsely arrested and then unjustly tried and then killed. And because he knows things, his heart is troubled. And yet despite this pressure of what's coming, as we read on, what we see is his selflessness his humility and his love as he reassures his disciples that everything that is happening is according to his father's plan. And what about the disciples? Well, they too are troubled in their hearts. They heard Jesus talking about his departure. They heard him talk about his betrayal and his coming death. They know that dark days lie ahead. And so they too are anxious and confused and troubled in their hearts. And Jesus, he knows their trouble. And as he always does, he draws near to them. And he speaks words to them that they need to hear. Now, I don't know how you respond to pressure. Uh, Most Sunday mornings, I feel that there's a little bit of tension in the Whitfield house. Um, I'm there just trying to get straight my last bit of thoughts before my sermon. 
I think that it's very important that I, I know what I'm about to say to you. And then my children, delightful little people that they are, they come and they want to spend time with me. It's, have you noticed that with kids, that they can sense that when you're under pressure and there's only a little bit of time left, now is the moment for a significant conversation. And my tendency is to like, be sitting at the computer and just go, could you just come back in like five hours? <laughs> like the, the tension sort of bubbles over, doesn't it? But Jesus, he, he, the pressure that he is under is immense compared to my little Sunday morning moment. And Jesus, he doesn't push his disciples away. He pauses and he takes the time to explain what is happening to them. Their hearts are troubled. And he says there is an antidote. It's in chapter 14, verse 1. Trust in God. Trust also in me. When Jesus says to trust him, it means to believe him and to take his promises at his word. In John's Gospel, uh, what we're seeing is that Jesus is always urging people to listen carefully to his words and then to put their trust in him. It's been what's happening since Jesus' very first words. And he calls them again here to trust his Father, but also to trust him. Now that is a big request. And he goes on to tell them why. First, he tells them about the house with many rooms. He's speaking about his father's heavenly home. And he uses a picture of a house to describe the way that his father's home will be opened up to all his disciples to share with them. And the house, it speaks of a picture of permanence. Many rooms reminds us that there is space for everyone who believes in his father's house. And that's the very thing that Jesus underlines at the end of verse 2. Not only does the house have many rooms, but Jesus says he is going there to prepare a place. And if he does that, then he's going to come back again and he's going to collect his disciples and bring them to be with him. It's a wonderful personal and affectionate picture, isn't it? Jesus is under immense pressure, cracking almost anybody at this stage as he knows his death is coming and his betrayal is there at hand. And yet, Jesus is speaking about how he wants his disciples who trust him to be with him in his father's home. Now, during the week, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about what it means for Jesus to say, I want you to be where I am. Jesus is preparing a place for his followers and it isn't as simple as making the bed and fluffing the pillows. Uh, What he is describing is real hospitality. Recently I heard about a report of something wonderful happening around Australia. Uh, Apparently there are families who have heard about uh, refugees who don't have a place to live and so they open up the spare room of their house. Uh, They're welcoming in strangers. They've made all the necessary arrangements to bring someone in. But imagine God doing that for people like you and me. For sinners for people who ignore him, are with all that weight on our conscience and all that grime on our record. And yet he still wants us to be with him. And then I thought about the lengths Jesus goes to for us to be with him. For Jesus to prepare a place for us cost him dearly. He had to pass through death and hell on his way to prepare a place for us in his father's house. It's a painful journey, 
that he's going to go to as he voluntarily stands in our place on the cross, taking the full wrath of God for our sins. There's good reason that Jesus' heart should be troubled. It's an immense burden that he carries in the place of his followers. But once he'd done so, once he had paid the price, then he could go home to his father's place. And then one day he'll come again to gather his followers to be with him in his home. He must want us to be with him very much. And the promise here, they're intended to put the disciples' hearts at ease. He shows the full extent of his love. Now I'm going to pause here and say, Sam, could you just help Nick and Rebecca find their way to kids' church, please? Sorry about that, everyone. But what we're seeing here is the pressure is on Jesus. But he's not going to break because he's always looking to the good of other people. And there's another sign of his gentleness. In verse 4, he reminds his disciples that the way to the Father's house is already known to them. Jesus has been slowly and carefully teaching and building the picture for them. And you see the way that Jesus deals with the anxiety of his friends. He doesn't just bounce up to them and tell them to stop being miserable. Uh, What he does, well, he doesn't give a pep talk. He doesn't say, turn to man up, princess, work with the team. No, like a good shepherd, he acknowledges their troubled hearts and he gives them reasons why they need not be disturbed. And so he reassures them, I'm going to prepare a place for you even as it might cost me much. And it doesn't even end there. The disciples have heard these big things. Unsurprisingly, they still have questions, two questions in particular. The first one comes from Thomas in verse 5. He says, we don't know the way. And Jesus again responds patiently and graciously to Thomas's question. And then he says in verse 6 those famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus assures them in verse 4 that they do know the way. Thomas has said, no, we don't. And Jesus says, I am it. It's like he says, you know me, don't you? If you do, then you know the way. I am the way. I am the way to the house with many rooms. And I'm the way because I am the one who is preparing the place for you. And what's more, he says, I am the truth and the life as well. If you want to know God, if you want to know how to get to God, if you want to live with God, then I am your man, says Jesus. Now at this point, if you're listening carefully, you're thinking, isn't this starting to stray dangerously into arrogant person territory? Well, I think if you're going to make a big claim, then you have to be able to back it up and deliver. And Jesus says that this truth, that he is the way, and the life, and the truth, and that there is no other way to God the Father except through him. Jesus says this truth rules out all other possibilities. It rules out all other claims. That word at the end of verse 6, it's as radical today as it was 2,000 years ago when he first said it. No one comes to the Father except through me. It would have rocked the world 2,000 years ago just like it rocks the world today. Now in my house, uh, we have a song based on verse 6. We actually sang it at the beginning of church today. 
Uh, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Uh, without the life, there is no living. That's what Jesus said. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then he underlines this radical claim in verse 7. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And that verse, it brings to the climax what Jesus has been talking about. It's bringing to climax that issue of who knows what. Do the disciples know the way or don't they? And here Jesus spoke, speaks about the way of knowing that really counts. Knowing God. And he says that knowing God comes from knowing him. If you want to see God, then look at Jesus. It's not really a surprise then, with a claim that big, that people wanted to kill Jesus. Seeing God is seeing Jesus. These are staggering words, to say the least. And once again, Jesus' words of assurance actually provoke a further question. Now, this time, the disciples seem even more hesitant than they did a moment ago. Jesus has said, you've seen the Father if you've seen me. And then Philip says, show us the Father in verse 8. And once again, Jesus responds with such patience. Look at verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is speaking to Philip with such a friendly tone. He's calling him by name. What happens when you get pushed to the limit? When someone keeps asking you the same question that you feel you've explained time and time again? You want to start pulling out your hair, don't you? But Jesus, he doesn't put the stick about. He takes the time to carefully say, you've been with me for the last three years. You've seen what I've been doing. It's all been pointing to God the Father working through me. And Jesus is referring back to those events that Philip has seen and witnessed. This is evidence that his claims are not him stepping into too big a shoes for him. It's actually, well, it's backed up by evidence. Philip was right there with Jesus from the beginning. And when they went to the wedding in Cana in Galilee and they ran out of wine, they saw Jesus generously making enough wine to fill a whole Toyota Hiace. You might think, how does he know that you could make that much wine to fill that truck? The internet tells me. Someone has done the calculations. And Philip was right there when they ran out of food in the wilderness, when Jesus was teaching a crowd of 5,000. He saw how a boy brought his five loaves of bread and his two fish to Jesus, and how Jesus, filled with compassion, fed 5,000 people with enough leftovers to fill five baskets. And Philip was there when a man who'd never been able to see in his entire life was given sight as Jesus gently touched him on the eyes. And Philip was there when Jesus went to the grave of a friend, Lazarus, who had died some days earlier. And he saw how Jesus wept as he went up to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out alive and well. Philip had seen all these things and more. These are the things that Jesus was pointing back to. You've seen me. You've seen what I've done. Does that match up to my claim? And his words become even stronger in verse 10. 
And now he's putting that issue of trust right in front of them again. Verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. He's basically saying, look friends, I'm not making this up. I'm not pulling it out of a hat. These things are not just my words, but they're the words of my Father. And he is doing the work of his work through me as I speak to you. And if I tell you that the Father is in me, and if you've seen me, then you've seen God, then you can trust me. I am the truth. And the disciples, then, like us today, they are hesitant. But again, we see Jesus, the good shepherd. He's nurturing them and dealing with them gently, leading them to understand how trustworthy and caring he is. And given that trust is a key issue here, what do you think God would do with someone who claims to be his representative on earth? If they made all these claims that Jesus is making, what do you think God would do with someone who makes such big claims? Well, death always has the final word. If there's no truth in his claims, then at death he'll just disappear into history's rubbish heap like so many before him, wouldn't he? But what happened to Jesus after he claimed to reveal the Father? What happened to Jesus after he said, I will prepare a place at the cost of my own life for you in my Father's kingdom? What happened to Jesus when he said that when you look at me, you see God? Well, three days after his death, did he remain in the grave? Not at all. God vindicated his every claim by raising him from the dead. He made big claims and wonderfully he backed them all up and his father gave it his guaranteed tick of approval. This is a stunning part of the Bible, isn't it? In it we hear the voice of Jesus and there are no voices like it in history or in our world today. He speaks with unmatched authority. He has unmatched tenderness and he says outrageous things and then demonstrates and assures us that they are really true and he speaks to us this morning and he says do not let your hearts be troubled trust in God trust also in me this has been his message for 2,000 years trust me now why should you trust Jesus Well, he's given us the assurance that his promises are true. He's given us the assurance of his resurrection and appearing first to Peter and then to all the disciples and then to more than 500 people at the same time. He's passed through the darkest hour and he now lives with his father. And he says, there is room enough for you in my father's house. And if we trust him, then his place is our future too. This is his promise. That's his promise to his first disciples and the roadmap hasn't changed since then. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now the world we live in finds that last sentence. No one comes to the Father except through me. Possibly the most objectionable thing that anyone could say. How dare we claim that we have the truth? How dare we suggest that there is no other path to God How dare you say there is no other door to heaven 
except through Jesus? Well, actually, no, we don't. We don't say that at all. That would be the height of arrogance to say it if we did. But it is Jesus who says that. He is the one who dealt gently with everyone he met. He is the one who God put his seal of approval on when he raised him from the dead. We simply choose to accept the invitation that Jesus offers to trust him. So to say about Jesus that he is the only way, is that unacceptably arrogant? I don't think so. Yes, some Christians have behaved in an unacceptably arrogant way. Uh, I'm sad to say that perhaps sometimes I've come across as arrogant. Uh, That's far from my intention. And yet in all of this, we need to remember that there is in fact nothing arrogant in claiming that you have certainty. Because certainty, in nearly every way you think about it, leads to things being better and more truthful. And this um, certainty is not misplaced when it comes as a gift. You see, Jesus came to reveal the Father to us and he does it all graciously with only generosity in his heart and on his lips. And we who believe what Jesus said, we've seen him, in him, the authority of God himself. In him we see someone who is humble and kind and loving. And so we trust him and we trust in God also. So what should we do? I think first what we want to do is make every effort to avoid choosing to ignore God when he speaks to you. What we need to avoid is thinking that we know better than the one who came from God and revealed the truth. Instead, what's better is to take the words of Jesus seriously, to examine them carefully and to come to a quiet, confident conclusion that here is someone who is trustworthy. And so, by the mercy of God, those of us who have turned our lives over to Jesus, we've been given this gift, and with this comes the privilege of knowing the way. Is it unacceptably arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way to God? Only if he couldn't back up his claims. Only if he remained dead in the grave would this be the height of arrogance. But because Jesus rose from the dead, there is every reason for us to think that this is actually Jesus offering acceptable evidence for putting our confidence in him. So I wonder where you're coming from today. I wonder if the time has come for you to not be arrogant, but to change your mind. If you want to find out what the next steps are in terms of knowing more about Jesus, uh, then please say so on your Connect card. Uh, In a few minutes' time, Ira will give us directions about how to collect that. Uh, But let me finish with leaving you the words that Jesus speaks. They come from John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Arrogance if he didn't rise from the dead. Truth worth trusting if he did. Amen.